As you know, I think we're in the uh, beginning stages of our study of the book of Jude, a small letter in the New Testament right before the book of Revelation. And uh, yesterday, or, uh, last Wednesday, we dealt with some of the preliminary things, and we uh, covered an amazing two verses, and that's all. But we had a lot of good discussion. So uh, let's pick up. I don't think I need to review anything, so I, I really won't take the time to do that. But Jude, who is a brother of Jesus and brother of James, uh, writes in verse 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you. And I'm going to stop there for just a moment. <clears throat> It's interesting, um, sometimes you see this. You see this in the book of Ephesians, for example, where in chapter 3 of the book of Ephesians, Paul starts off on one subject, and it's like he goes on a bunny trail. And he doesn't come back to that till, till chapter 5. Uh, here's another example of that. Um, Jane, uh, Jude excuse me, says, the original intent of my letter was to write to you about our common salvation. I wanted to write to you about what we share in Jesus Christ and the salvation and saving grace of Christ. But I found it necessary to write to you about something else. So the unknown here is uh, what caused him to change his mind, what caused him to change the focus of the letter. We know what that focus is, and we'll get to that in just a minute. But I'm just mentioning that because here again is one of those many, many, many illustrations of how and why you can trust the Bible. This isn't some stereotyped, formalistic, contrived, this is a real letter. And because of its content and all that we argue for the inspiration of Scripture, it bears that evidence. It's intellectually honest. I started to write one thing to you, but I changed my mind. And what he is refocusing, if you will, is something that was a real concern in the early church, a major concern in the early church, error. Error was creeping into the church. Now remember, this is A.D. 65, 66, something like that. It's early. It's only about 30 years after Jesus went back to the Father. And already you see a concern. This is almost every one of Paul's letters. That's a concern. The book of Hebrews is about correcting error among Jewish Christians and so on. So here he goes immediately to the change subject. I want you to contend for the faith that was once all, for all delivered. So what I've done on the board is I want to spend some time on this verse. And um, maybe I'll choose a different color. <clears throat> um, let's take this, so I didn't write every word of the verse up here. You know, I didn't put all the articles and everything, but these are the key. Contend, faith, once delivered. Um, Jude says, you know, I wrote to you initially, I was going to talk to you about the common salvation we all share. I wanted to talk about that. But I've changed my mind. 
I want you to contend. Now, I'm reading from the ESV translation, and I'm pretty sure all translations translate that Greek word content. I, I'm pretty sure. Unless you have a paraphrase, it, it's going to be content. Now, that's a good translation. What does contend mean? When you hear the word contend in English, what comes to your mind? You have to deal with something. You what? You have to deal with something. You have to fight for something. Okay, it has, it has the nuance of fighting for something. It's very active. It's a very proactive type of verb. If you're contending for something, that means you are willing to fight for it. You are willing to draw the line in the sand on this issue. So what are you contending for? I mean, what are you fighting for? What are you defending? What, what are you um, arguing for? I'm trying to put a bunch of synonyms in there that will kind of get the sense. You know, Jim, it's, uh, yeah. we'll be talking about boxing, for instance. They talk about the contender. Good, good. You know? It's a great illustration. Yeah. Great illustration. The contender is a part of the boxing language, yes. So, or contention, if you make it a noun, contention means there's disagreement. People are disagreeing in contention. There's, there's maybe actual physical contention, but mostly it's verbal, you're disagreeing over something. Now, what, is, what are you to contend for? So how, the, the sense of this is kind of both defensive, but also offensive. There's both an defensive and offensive, do you understand what I mean when I put it that way, sense to the term contend here, because he tells, what are we to contend for? What are we to defend? What are we to go on the offense concerning the faith? What faith? Now, uh, let me go down a bunny trail real quickly if I could. The word faith uh, in, in Greek is pistis. I know that doesn't mean anything to you, but it's used as a verb, and it's used as a noun. It is used of that faith that you put, that initial commitment or statement or agreement of faith when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, that first step. But it also is used of that system, that body, of belief. It's the belief system. What do you believe? So we speak today of the Christian faith versus the Muslim faith versus the Hindu faith. You understand what I'm saying? So it's probably the latter is how Jude's using this, isn't it? Contend for the faith. What faith? The belief system. What you believe. The Christian faith as opposed to the Jewish faith, I'm trying to think of things, or the cult of Mithra faith, which was a major Eastern cult at the time of the Roman Empire or whatever. So, um, contend for the faith, the Christian faith, that body of belief, that, let's put it this way, that list of bullets that we're willing to die for. What would be some of those bullets? Do you understand what I'm using Bullets, you know what I mean? Itemized beliefs. What would be some of those? Virgin birth. Say it again. Virgin birth. All right. This isn't very clear, so I will stop using that. Oh, maybe I'll just stick with black. Okay, the virgin birth. What else? Death and resurrection. Death and resurrection. 
resurrection. The resurrection, absolutely. The resurrection is central to the Christian faith. Was then, AD 66, it is now 2017. I don't want to make a long list, but a couple more maybe. Salvation Jim? by faith instead of works. All right, salvation by faith. I'm going to just do a little abbreviating here. Not of works, I'll send them answer those, that kind of thing. What else? The Trinity. Okay, the idea of God is Trinity. One essence of three persons who differ relationally <laughs> function. Father, Son, Spirit. Maybe one or two more. Was the crucifixion ever being questioned? I'm sorry? Was the crucifixion ever being questioned? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, maybe we can put here the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. I mean, that block of events that occurred. Uh, it certainly is today. You know, many Probably people. Eternal life. All right. Uh, and the deity of Jesus too. The idea of eternal life. And yes, the deity of Jesus. I mean, we could go on and on and on. I mean, we could just fill this board and the backside and these second, walls and everything. But the these are some coming. of the, huh? the second, coming. second coming would be another one. I mean, you could just, like I said, we could continue to write a number of these. But these would be examples of the faith. So he's not just saying your faith in Jesus Christ contends for that. The Christian faith, that body of beliefs that defined the uniqueness of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I don't think we should omit the law or the Ten Commandments. I think they should be included there. Well, yeah, like I said, we could add a lot more. So these are just illustrations of all that we have about the moral law of God is what I like to call it, okay? Now I want you to notice something else that he does here. Jude could have said, contend for the faith, and everybody would have understood what he meant. But he says something that adds some real significance that I think is very applicable for 2017. He says, the faith that's once delivered. What's he saying there? What is he really arguing there? There's only one. There's only one faith, once, but once delivered, add something else to it. What else? What else does it add to it? Not only its uniqueness. There's no more, like it's done. Yeah, it's, it's been delivered. It's been delivered. It's done. It's here. It's available. God is not continuing to give additional revelation. This has been delivered. It's here. So it implies very strongly, now I'm going to use a word, it implies the canon of Scripture. Is that a new word? No, it's not canon, a piece of artillery. That's two ends. It's canon, which comes from a Latin word which means standard or bar, B-A-R. You know, a bar or a... That's a part of a race or, or, or whatever. It's a standard. So it implies that a standard already exists. It is a written canon. That's important. 
You see, that has an awful lot, has a lot of implications today for Islam, which says that in the 600s there was another prophet who came along and received additional revelation. So, you know, the Old Testament has some things to say, and the New Testament has some things to say, but it's really the Quran. It also has a lot to say about Joseph Smith. I don't know if you have ever heard of him. But in the 1800s, up in upstate New York, he said that an angel came to me and showed me new plates of a new revelation of God. They were written in Reformed hieroglyphics, and God showed me special glasses, which enabled me to read those. And then when I was done writing all that down and recording all that, the angel took it back to heaven. That's called the Book of Mormon. And if you've ever seen their advertisements on television, they invite you to write for two books, and they'll send them both to you. Volume 1, the Holy Bible. Volume 2, the Book of Mormon. You don't have the complete. So, Joseph Smith would not agree with this statement that there's a faith once delivered. There's a faith that continues to be delivered, and it's ongoing. See, this is why this is a very, very strategic verse. Jude is saying, what you need to know about God, what you need to know about salvation, what you need to know about his plan." has already been delivered. Fight for that. Contend for that. Now I want that to just distill down and then percolate up as questions or whatever. This that's what I just I, I want to just stress how important this verse is. Jude is making an extraordinary claim here. It's not a claim that is it, it's perfectly re- reviewed over and over and over again in the other New Testament books. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 and 3 show it the same thing. But it's so succinct, it's so pithy, it's just a few words. Contend for the faith once delivered. Delivered to the Go saints. Mm-hmm. How do I identify the saints? You're a saint. You're a saint. Saint Woody. Saint Woody. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, 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 in in a humorous way, but I mean, that's a, when you look at, let me give you an example. You you open the book of First Corinthians, and the apostle Paul says, "I'm writing to you, saints, at Corinth." It's just, it's just an absolutely remarkable statement, and he does that in a number of places in the New Testament. Saint, saint is. Uh, translating a word which means holy one. A believer? A believer, it's a synonym for believer. Saint, the term saint focuses on, uh, we have talked about this, so hopefully you remember this. It refers to your position in Christ, who you are, what's your identity. I'm a saint. I've I've been declared righteous by God because I put my faith in Christ. That's what justification is. So Jude is saying that God has delivered this to the saints, the faith. Now contend for it. Glenn, you had your hand up. So so help me out with a a 
short history lesson, so not the anathema part. Um, you see the, can the written canon, right? So the books, there were more books written that were adopted and some excluded. Um, you see an aversion to the Apocrypha for mm -hmm. the Catholic Bibles. Mm -hmm. uh, does that reference any, is that written, is this before all that happened? <laughs> yes. Almost. This is, a, this is a Pandora's box. I mean, it, it, and it, but it's a great question, and it's not one I want to ignore. It's a great question. It really is. Um, some of the books that are considered to be apocryphal books, I'm thinking, for example, First and Second Maccabees, one I'm thinking right. of, that would have been written shortly after the, the Maccabean Revolt, which was before Christ. But then others that were a part of that, like um, the Gospel according to Judas, the Gospel according to Thomas, these are books that actually, uh, study shows they're Gnostic texts. All, of, all that Jude is referring to here, those books haven't been written yet. Okay, so before that. That's, this is before those books. Thomas was written about... A.D. 150, the Gospel according to Judas was written about A.D. 170, I mean, a lot of those others. So at what point was the Orthodox versus the Big C Catholic split? Well, it depends. <laughs> it, it depends on how you look at it. Officially, and this is, this is a big adverb there, officially, it's the Council of Trent in the 1560s that declare all the apocryphal books, which totals 15, are sacred canon, just like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, etc. However, those many of those apocryphal books were cited and, and used in early Catholic, early Catholic fathers, early, 400s. Jude will cite an apocryphal book near the end of this, this little letter. He will cite one. Uh, it's called the Assumption of Moses, and it, he, he cites that, and I want to talk about that. We won't get to that today. It's right near the end of the book. So those books are valuable both historically as well. I mean, because like Maccabees, it's recording historical events. They're very helpful, but you ask, are they inspired? Were they accepted in the early church as inspired canonical books? The answer is no, they were not. Okay. There were three tests that the church used to discern what were canonical scripture? One, was it written by an apostle or sanctioned by an apostle? For example, uh, Paul quotes Luke and calls Luke's writing scripture, so it's sanctioned by an apostle. Second, um, is the language in which it was written? Is it written in Greek or Hebrew? Or was it written in Latin? I mean, if it's written in Latin, that was, uh, that was not Jews accepted. How widely did it circulate? Uh, the letters of Paul immediately, immediately were circulating all over the Mediterranean world. Uh, the Gospel of Thomas did not circulate. That, that was written at, like I said, 150 AD. It was not written by an apostle. It's not written... At, uh, it was written in an early or a uh, late form of uh, of of, uh, of Greek. 
It doesn't have any resemblance to Koine Greek. I'm just getting real technical here, but they were some of the technical questions that were asked. And there was hardly any disagreement about the New Testament books, um, the 27 books of the New Testament, until you get um, to a little bit later on. The controversy was over Second Peter, uh, Revelation, and to some extent, depends, some extent Hebrews. But for the most part, that wasn't. So the Greek Orthodox Church, uh, there is, that's a good question. The Greek Orthodox Church does not make a big deal out of the apocryphal books. Okay. It does not, not like the Roman Catholic Church does. Um, but they have, but anyway, it's not as big of a deal in Rome as Eastern Orthodox or Orthodox Christianity. Okay. And going back to the, the pagan religions in, in Egypt and stuff, yes. how, what was the time frame from, uh, from there until when Jesus... When you say the pagan, you mean like... The, 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 the influence, of, because the, the, the early you know, the Jewish people were, were profoundly... Okay, now you're going back to the Old Testament, right, right. In 50 years of in the Old Testament. Then, right. So is that influence still applicable and... Not, 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 not by the time of Jesus. Not at all. What was more influential and more uh, threatening, I guess, would be the Eastern cults coming out. The East, like cult of, I mentioned earlier, cult of Mithra, and some of the other Eastern cults that were mixing uh, some Jewish teaching with uh, dualistic teaching coming out of the ancient world. We're really getting in the weeds here for some of you. I know that, and I don't want to do that. But I, I, I will answer any more questions you have. But that verse, and, and again, we're talking about verse 3, is a very important verse. Because Jude is defining, defining some boundaries here. Isn't he? The faith once delivered. That's establishing boundaries. And he is saying, contend for those. And then he illustrates why this is so important in the next verse. Now let me continue. Are you with me? Did, or did I, I didn't mean, I answered questions, and they were good questions. I may have lost some of you, but I'd like to get back to verse 5 now. For, now I think again, almost all of your translations have that. That's a gar in Greek. Verse 4 is the reason why he's saying this. Why are you saying that, Jude? Contend for the faith once delivered. You could translate that because. Here's why. Certain people, this is how the ESV translates, have crept in unnoticed. Crept in. In where? Into the church. This isn't coming from outside the church. These are people in the church. They've crept in from the outside. They've crept in. That's a great translation, by the way. Crept in. Can't you just, you can almost see that happening, can't you? You know, just slithering into the church, you know, unnoticed. Nobody. What? What? The Grinch. Yeah, the Grinch. Yeah, that's, oh, I didn't even think of that. That's a great, if you don't know what the Grinch is, your kids never watch good Christmas shows. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unnoticed. Who long ago were designated for this condemnation? Who, who designated them for that? St. Paul. 
Who designated them for judgment? God did. Now that just think about that for a minute. That's really important too. James is sorry, I keep saying James. Jude, I'm sort of preaching slash teaching here because I'm getting excited. But who crept in unnoticed, who long ago designated or designated for this condemnation, just didn't catch God off guard. They didn't slip up on God's blind side. He saw it. But you see, he's saying it is up to you as the leaders of the church to see them the way God sees them. They are promoting error. He has set them aside for judgment. He will deal with them. But you must be alert to deal with them as well. He says of them, who are these people? They're ungodly people. Now, here is the really important part. Here's the nature of their false teaching. Here are the two key items of their false teaching. Who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and who deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Let's look at the second one first. Men, every error that has ever crept in in the church always distorts the person of Jesus Christ. There are no exceptions to that. Error always, the first question you need to ask when you have a question about what someone is teaching it, I want to find out what do they believe about Jesus Christ. Let me give you a couple of examples. You know, and I hope I don't offend anybody, I I don't mean to, but you know Jehovah's Witness is an error-filled system of faith because they deny the deity of Jesus Christ. Right away, immediately you know they're in error. Mormonism, teachings of Joseph Smith, immediately you know they're because of what they say about Jesus. Islam, immediately you know they're in error because they do not believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. He's a prophet, but he's not the God-man. And I could go on and on and on. So what Judas said, we don't exactly know what they were teaching. We don't know what error, the substance or content of their error But their error was in denying our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever they were teaching, whatever they were advocating, whatever they were saying, they were proclaiming error about Jesus. Got it? Yes. Woody's got it. The rest of you, you're playing living statues, but I'm going to assume you got it. The other, the other is a little more nuanced. But look at, look at how he does this. Again, the ESV translates these words, I think, quite well. Back now to the first part, in the middle of verse 4. They pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. All right, let's take that apart. <clears throat> Take that apart because this is this is really quite important. <clears throat> I 
All right. I really like how ESV has translated that Greek verb. I like it's pervert. That's a good, good way to translate that. What does pervert mean? Distort. Distort. In a negative way. In a negative way. Something that is very good is distorted or perverted or twisted into something that's very evil. We speak in the 21st century of sexual perversion. Now, that the content of sexual perversion is much narrower than it used to be. <laughs> you know, I mean, there were just, well, I don't want to get into that, but I'm using that. One, one person has defined it in this way. Perversion is a distortion of something that's very good into something that's very evil. Who created sexuality? God first. Genesis chapter 2. That's good. When a man and a woman who love the Lord and love each other are in the bedroom experiencing the, the bliss of romantic sexual love, the Holy Spirit doesn't leave the room. I hope you, I'm not being crass there. I'm just kidding. The Lord delights in that. He created it. But when a man commits adultery, or bestiality, or sexual, any kind, that, that hurts the Lord because it's perverting, it's distorting, it's prostituting something good. Now we could go on and on. It's, it's the same way with the idea of a work ethic, the idea of working hard with goals and energy and commitment. It's a good thing. God created work. He says to humanity, you're be creative, cultivated with me in my world. But if that becomes workaholism, that's a perversion of something that's good. You follow me? So when, when the ESV translates that Greek word pervert into pervert in English, there's a good translation because it's perverting something that is absolutely beautiful, the grace of God. King James uses the word less, lasciviousness. Am I doing that right? Oh, lasciviousness. Into lasciviousness. Yeah, they're using an Elizabethan word that nobody uses anymore. But that's not bad. Lasciviousness is not a bad word because it's, again, to be lascivious, it's an old Elizabethan English word, is perversion. You're distorting something that's good into something that's evil. So, grace. We've talked about that dozens of times in this, in this class. Grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. Some people use it as an acrostic. It's unmerited favor shown to us by God. We don't deserve it. We haven't merited it. We haven't earned it. And that's what I, my example is always God does all the work of salvation lays it on the table and says, it's a gift. Pick it up. I've done everything. Last week I used the, the you know, the softball throws where there are, you know, the, the bottles on the top of the pad, got to knock them off with a softball. And, you know, you say, well, he come to Christ and he'll now help you hit the softball. No, no, no. He hits them for you. He does it all for you. But what is being perverted because the grace of God means the gift is offered to me. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to earn it. I don't have to merit it. I just accept it. 
But what are they doing with this beautiful word, this beautiful concept, this central idea of the faith once delivered, perverting it into sexuality? I'm going to use another word. Into a libertine lifestyle. Does that make sense? Libertine, I can do whatever I want. Sexually, with my body. There are, because of the grace of God, I'm now, because the bridge that connects the grace of God and sensuality is a distorted understanding of freedom. I'm now free to do whatever I want. Is that Christianity? No. No. You're now free from the burden of sin, free from the power and enslavement of sin to serve the Lord in loving obedience. And we approach that loving obedience because he's our creator, he's our redeemer. This book is the manufacturer's handbook telling us how to live because our creator is saying, this is how I want you to live. And now it's no longer coercion and manipulation and control by an, an authoritarian God who doesn't have my best interests at heart and wants to make my life miserable. No, the grace of God teaches us that God created us, God loves us, and God wants to solve our problem. That's why he sent Christ. And he makes it available, not by earning it or meriting it, but he does it all in his grace. We saw that last week. What does Jude say? Grace to you. Mercy to you. Because God did it all. But what's happened, this is the other thing to look for in distorted false teaching. What did they do with the grace of God? I'll use that example. We, we talked about it now. This will be the third time. Joseph Smith and Mormonism, what's it saying? You must earn God's favor. You must merit God's favor. What you do matters to God. Jehovah's Witness, you want to be part of the 144,000? you got to earn it. You have to work for it. And here are all the things you have to do. Or some of the perverted cults that have come up over and over and over again. Now you're free in Christ. Do whatever you want with your body. And you have Jim Jones coming along and saying, I'll call all you women are now my sex life because you belong to Christ. But that means you belong to me now. Is that Christianity? We don't know exactly what Jude is saying here, but he's saying, and the particular word that he uses there that is translated sensuality is a lack of self-control. That's really what it means. It's abandonment. Now I can do whatever I want. Is that Christianity? Now, what, what I, and I'll, I saw one or two hands there. What I want you to see here, and this is what's really applicable for you and me, every false teaching within the church makes two mistakes. Mistake number one is they distort the teaching about Jesus. And they make an error when it comes to Christ. And number two is they add to grace something else. Either grace plus works or grace equals libertinism. That's what Paul was combating in the letter to the 1 Corinthians. That's what he was combating there. 
The people in Corinth were saying, now that you've come to Christ, you can do anything you want with your body because God's going to destroy your body at death anyway. So now do whatever you want. So, now, distorting grace, distorting the person of Jesus. They're the two common errors in the 2,000 years of church history. And I could give you dozens of examples of each through the last 2,000 years. So where's the corrective? It's what the New Testament teaches about Jesus, and even the Old Testament prophecies, but what the New Testament teaches about Jesus and the New Testament teaches about grace. Mark. You're talking about different books, but there is preachers within the church like sneak in as well. How to deal with that? And because you go to another church. <laughs> but they condemn you as I agree. But uh, I, I, yeah. Can we can we have the liberty to con, to con, to challenge that or not? And then the other thing is you talked about grace is adding or subtracting you know, to the grace of God, which is you take away some of the the main message of grace of God. You know, you talked about adding to it, which is more works, but sometimes you subtract and give it as a as a license to commit uh, immorality, as, as the Bible says. What do you say about that? Well, yeah. Um, I'm not sure what to do with your question, because ultimately... If you are struggling with what a leader in your church is teaching in those two areas, um, sometimes it can be helpful to confront them, but most of the time it doesn't help. Uh, because you will... I'm not talking about my church. No, I know you're not. I know. There's an abstract <laughs> theoretical idea. Okay. But it is, um, I mean, that is, in the mainline communities today, that's increasingly becoming more and more of a difficult issue. It really is. But aren't those situations self-purging, more or less? They go away. I wish I could say yes, but again, in um, the mainline communities, Woody, um, they haven't gone away. They're deeply, deeply entrenched in the seminaries, which is where pastoral leadership is trained. Does the concept once saved, always saved, fall into this? <laughs> um, <laughs> the way you're asking that, John, um, is I, I don't I don't like that f f uh, uh, phrase. I like to think of it as is eternal security taught in the scriptures. Once saved, always saved is kind of a, a perverted phrase of that, that once saved, always saved. I have my fire insurance, now I can do and live however I want. That's kind of Yeah, that is, that is totally, totally outside of what the New Testament teaches. That's what the book of Galatians is all about. Why Paul, Paul writes the book of Galatians is to answer that very question. Yeah, I mean, it, he just says... Uh, now that I've experienced the grace of God, does that mean I can live however I want? And his answer in that in Greek is meganoita. It's the strongest way you can say no in the Greek language. It's like saying absolutely not with 500 exclamation points after. No! 
God did not save you through Jesus Christ. He did not send his son so you can live however you want. He's declared you righteous so that you now begin the process of sanctification where he is slowly but emphatically purging you of your old habits and replacing them with a new habit. It takes time. But this idea of once saved, always saved is a perversion of the grace of God. Thank you. As, as the way that phrase is used. I do not like that phrase. It's not a New Testament phrase. Eternal security is very much a New Testament. We saw that in one of the words at the very beginning of Jude, kept. Kept for Jesus Christ. All right, now, for the quiz next Wednesday then, I'm going to ask you, what are the two major errors? <laughs> You're all looking at me as if, you know, if I start giving quiz in this class, we'll empty quickly and nobody will ever come. Yeah, but anyway, it's just, just those are the two, almost every major cult or false teaching. That's where they make their error. About Jesus and about the grace of God. Yes. Right. In, in respect to the sensuality, yes. the, in some of the charismatic cults, the, the feeling aspect, I've been, I've been reading Packer again, the, the, you know, the, the emotion that, yeah. that, the, yeah. that a lot of religions teach that, that, that means that you've been saved as opposed to accepting the free gift and, and all that. I think that, that, part of, that should be part of the sensuality. Right? Yeah. Uh, the, one of, let, let me take this. It's a great teachable moment with Fred's question. But let me just remind you of something. We, we talked a little bit about this before, but this doesn't directly relate but it indirectly relates. I think it's important. When we're talking about the grace of God, we're talking about grace. Grace is a beautiful New Testament, biblical term, Old Testament too, but anyway, that really focuses on our position and our identity in Christ, who we are. Now, the grace of God is my position in Christ and my identity. I'm a new creature in Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. 2 Corinthians 5.17, a wonderful verse. All right, now, if that's my position and that's my identity, this must be accepted and lived by faith. It, I should have said accepted and live by faith. In other words, you accept this. You accept that this is what God has done. You accept that when Jesus died, and he died on the cross for you and was resurrected for you, you apply that to your life by faith, that's your new identity. I'm a, I'm a disciple of Christ, I'm a child of God, etc., etc. Et you accept that by faith, and then you live that by faith. Did you notice something? Emotion, feeling, is not a part of this. How you feel on a given morning does not affect your position or identity. Right? I mean, if you if you did not, last night in my neighborhood, I'm sure that was true, um, it was a war zone. I, it was unbelievable. Every year it gets worse. 
Last night it was 12.30 and fireworks were still going on. According to the ordinance in the city of Omaha, they're supposed to end at 11, but I don't think anybody follows that ordinance. But anyway, my wife said, honey, next 4th of July, we're going to go to a hotel. Like that would be any better. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know where. Maybe we'll go to a hotel in Atlantic Isle or something where four people live anyway. Uh, what, what, I'm saying because neither one of us slept very well last night. So both of us, when we woke up this morning, didn't feel rested, didn't feel, I kind of had a headache and so on. So if I measured my position and identity in Christ by how I felt this morning, I felt like I was a sinner headed to hell. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, some frustration and all those things. You know, you just, what I'm saying to you is feeling and emotion have nothing to do with the grace of God. I don't feel like I'm a Christian this morning. Bill Bright used to put it this way. He's been with the Lord a long time. He said, the Christian life is like a train. What's the engine and what's the caboose? The engine of our life as a Christian is faith. Emotion is the caboose. You know what we do so often? We flip the two. And we make emotion the engine. How we feel. The New Testament does not encourage us to see our lives that way. Because how you feel in your body, and as you get older and in this fallen, broken world, if you use your emotion and feelings as the metric of your relationship with Jesus Christ, this is going to be your life. It's going to be like this. I, I have been having a good day now. My relationship with Jesus is really strong. Uh, that's true, and I'm glad you're having a good day, but when you have a rotten day and you're in a hospital bed, your relationship with Jesus Christ is exactly the same as when you felt good. Because your feelings and your emotions are not dependent on your relationship with Christ. That is secure. That position and identity is secure. Now, how you function and how you relate to him, yes, all of those things are a part of sanctification. But feeling and emotion, and that's what I think, Fred, you were getting at. Sometimes, sometimes, in some of our churches, we so stress the emotional aspect of life all you're doing then is going from one spiritual high to the next spiritual high to the next spiritual high. And you want to seek that high. How do I get that high? Now, I'm using horrible metaphor there. But that's kind of the way we are. That is not the Christian life. Until the Lord comes back for us, our life is going to be like this. What we want to do, we want our life not to be like this. We want our life to be like this. And that's hard. I'm, I'm try, trying to make this uh, trivial. But that's what the New Testament says. Live what you are. Who am I? I'm a child of the king. I'm justified. I'm redeemed. I'm a new creature in Christ. That's who you are. Now live it. That's why my students, when they, and I'm sure you've been around people, they respond to a question, well, I feel like. I always, my response is, I'm not asking you to emote. I'm asking you to think. So I want them to respond, I think. That seems minor, but we live in a very emotive, feeling-oriented, 
experience-oriented, circumstance-oriented culture. That's not biblical Christianity. Grace is true. Being a child of God is true. Being a child of the King is true. Being a new creature in Christ is true. If you've trusted Christ, whether you feel like it or not, it's true. All right. Now, I went down a bunny trail and back. And we'll look at verse 6. But, yes, Fred. The, the acceptance is the adoption and your birth into Christianity. Mm. You are a babe and, and you grow That's right. as, as time expands and you work with the Word of God. But, but you have to accept the adoption into the family mm. of God. Another beautiful word. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With all the rights and all the privileges that go with it. And responsibilities. And responsibilities that go with it. All right, now, is everybody on track here? We've gotten two verses done today, and I have ten minutes left. I'd like to get a few more than last week. I'd like to beat last week's record. Look at verse 5 now. All right. We understand why he's writing the letter, and we understand the nature of the error. Grace and Jesus. Now, I want to remind you, this is Jude, verse 5, Although you once fully knew it, okay, now what does that imply? They've been taught this. They know this. So he's reminding them. (coughs) How many times do we need to be reminded of truth? Yeah, a lot, don't you? A good teacher... Always gives a preview, and does the view, and does a review. And the review, a good teacher, is at least ten times. They tell us you have to really hear something seven times fully explained before you really grasp it. So that's one of the reasons why I teach these Bible studies, because I want people to just hear the truth, wrestle through the truth over and over and over again. Because every book of the Bible is stressing certain basic truths about God and what he's doing. What more is he saying here? What's fully new is kind of implying what you forgot. What, what weren't they doing? They would say, well, yeah. You, their certainty, you know their conviction, the depth of their conviction, Glenn, is waning. Yeah. That's, that's the sense of that phrase. Okay. It's They knew it. They had a certainty about it. What happens over time? You can start going, oh, is that really true? Do I really believe that? Boy, I had 17 circumstances this week that really challenged me. I'm not sure I believe God is good anymore. You believed it. Now you're not so sure about it. So Jude is saying, I want to remind you of something that you had a deep-seated conviction about, but now it's waning. I want you to notice what he does. He uses three. He uses three examples. Now listen, three examples of individuals or groups that were exposed to error, that were exposed to sinful error, and paid a dear price for. 
Three examples. I don't know if we'll get through. I don't think we'll get through. The first example is ancient Israel coming out of Egypt. We just finished Exodus, so you should remember this. But look at how he puts it. That Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now, if you really are theologically alert, you noticed something. Boy, that was a terrible way to put it, because if none of you get it, I mean, your inference is I'm not theologically alert. I don't want you to. But if you're, there's something really significant there. Did you see it? I I don't know about that, but I have an example of, of destroying the ones that didn't believe, and that's the ones that, uh, the, uh, the false, I, the, and the golden calf, and, yeah, yeah, good, good, and then those who doubted uh, Moses during the wilderness wanderings and all of that, yeah. Where's Joshua? Yeah. Was he talking about his people? Oh, Moses, I was talking No, wait, Glenn, what were you saying? Were you talking about the adventures of Joshua? Uh, in, the, in the conquest? Yeah. No, I think he's still before the conquest. But we're still not. Yep, we're still not getting it. Still not getting it. Jesus, he says, Jesus, Jesus saved the people out of the land of Egypt. You go back and read Exodus, which we did months and months ago. Exodus seven, Exodus eight, Exodus nine. Who is carrying out the plagues on Egypt? Yahweh. Yahweh Elohim. Jude is saying Jesus, which is a major New Testament teaching. Jesus is Yahweh. This is an important insight into how the early church looked at theology. The theology of Jesus. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God. Just like the Gospel of John declares over and over and over and over again. The seven great I am statements of the Gospel of John takes you back to Exodus 3.14 when Moses said, who do I say sent me? Say, I am that I am sent you. And so what I'm telling you, this is a tremendous insight into how the early church looked at the Old Testament. That Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is Yahweh, one essence of three persons who differ relation functionally. It's a tremendous insight into theology of the early church. In my feet says the Lord, some manuscripts does not say Jesus says the Lord. So is all of them says the Lord? Or? Well, and Lord there is kurios, which is a translation in the, New, in the Old Testament of Yahweh. So the, in the original script, it says it was referring to Jesus. That's right. That's right. So it's a, it's a it's a tremendous insight into how the early church is looking at at the Lord Jesus Christ. So what happened to those who did not believe and trust in the Lord in the deliverance, in the wilderness wonders and all of that? The Lord judged them. Secondly. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, 
he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. This is a little more complicated, but the Bible tells us in several places, if you really want to go into some of the detail, it's in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19. There's a certain group of angels that God has locked up. Who are they? Well, some suggest, and it's hard to be definitive, but the angels who did not stay within their own authority, they're the ones that are referred to in Genesis 6. They were the energizing demonic force behind the attempt to pollute the, the, the pure line of Seth. What was that? 1 Peter chapter 3, 19, chapter 3 verse 19. All, what all Jude is doing is saying, even in the spiritual realm, angels who rebelled against God, God has locked them up. 1 Peter 3.19 is apparently an important reference to this. They're in a very special place, waiting the judgment of the lake of fire when God throws Satan into the lake of fire. Revelation chapter 20. And then the third example in verse 7, just as Sodom, Gomorrah, and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, no matter how you look at verse 7, the primary sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was a sexual sin. And God judged them. And by the way, when he says, undergoing a punishment eternal, um, two historians of the ancient world, Philo and Josephus, say that the smoke from the fire of Sodom and Gomorrah south of the Dead Sea was still visible at the time of Christ. I'm serious. I don't know whether they two, an historian by the name of Philo, who is a Roman historian, and then a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus, speaks of the smoke that still was lingering from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. So whatever Jude is doing here is he's saying, has God dealt with those who have perverted and distorted his truth? Certain Israelites who did not believe and trust in the Lord, he judged them. The angels who rebelled against God, he judged them. And Sodom and Gomorrah, who perverted his important creation ordinance about sexuality, he judged them. Why is Jude doing this? If you distort the truth of God and go into apostasy, God will hold you to account. What Jude, he, because remember, he's writing to believers. They're not doing this. He is warning them about those who are perverting. God's going to take care of them. It's really eternally important to God. And so your perspective must be God's perspective. And so he's going to tell them what he wants them to do. And that's next week. Are you with me on what's going on here? I'm sorry? You said there were four. No, I only I think I said three.
Yeah, only three. All right. Did I'm going to pray. I don't know if we broke a record, but we sure did a lot better than last week. So, anyway, I, I hope you're with me. This is, a, this is a very important little book in the New Testament. Let's pray here and we'll let you go. Lord, thank you for our time. Um, sound doctrine matters to you. You are alerting through the Apostle Jude, the early church, about two errors that were creeping in. Those who were perverting the grace of God and those who were perverting and distorting the sound teaching about who Jesus is. Both of those errors are very much around today in 2017, which means it's incumbent upon us to have the clarity of who Jesus is. He's the God-man. Fully God, fully human, united in one person. He was the Lamb of God as the substitute. He was fully human so he could die for us. He was fully God so he could be the perfect substitute for us. I can't die and it satisfy your demands if I die for Fred or if I die for Woody because I've got the same problem they do. But Jesus didn't have that problem. He was perfect. That's a really important truth. That's what the scriptures teach. Anything that distorts that is apostasy. It's error. The grace of God is the most beautiful concept in all of Scripture. It's what motivates you in your relationship with your image bearers, the human race. You accomplish everything that needs to be accomplished. We don't add to it. We don't take away from it. Anything that distorts or perverts your grace is error. So we want to make sure we really understand the beauty of that wondrous concept that explains what the Lamb of God did for each one of us. So I thank you for those great truths. Help us to also understand, as Jude is just explaining, that you will not tolerate error. You will not tolerate those who pervert and distort. And so you just make it clear in those three examples. We represent the living truth of Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. We don't distort or pervert. We live out in loving obedience, a vibrant, vital walk with you. We want to live for you. We want to represent you well. Help us to do that in this world that desperately needs the answers that Christ provides. So give us a good rest of this day, and may again we represent you well in Christ's name. Amen. See you next week.